Hey there, everybody. This is the start of a uh, short series of over-the-summer special episodes to get you revved up for our fall season. This one obviously is coming out in synchronicity with the new Neil Gaiman Sandman series with an emphasis on various characters that get you across either the river sticks or what other um, metaphysical and mythological liminal space between this life and whatever your uh, religion of choice uh, has on the other side. So um, a really fun conversation, lighthearted with friend of the show, Heidi, who runs sandmanbooks.com down in Florida and is a pretty um, really compelling costume uh, maker, cosplayer, and designer at Chimera Costumes if you want to check out her uh, amazing Instagram profile. So a really fun dive to prepare us all for dealing with the concepts of death and travel in the great beyond slash Gaimanverse slash whatever. All right, enjoy it. Talk to you all later. Bye. Welcome to Oops All Monsters, the deadly unserious show about creatures, cryptids, and curiosities curated by two weirdos from wild and wonderful West Virginia. That weirdo with me is actually not with me today. Instead, I have a different weirdo, although I don't know whether I should actually call them that. She will have to correct me if, if, uh, if not. But when she's not selling books on the West Coast of Florida is Heidi. Heidi, can you tell us something about who you are in the world? What do you do? Um, yeah, so I own a bookstore. I run a bookstore um, since 2006. And I also do a lot of costuming. Basically, since about 1999, I've done costumes. <laughs> I really like monsters and mythology, and so that ties in very well with my both my job and my hobby. The, the audience is kind of in an interesting spot in this show where um, generally, if I bring, an ep- bring a topic, Gavin doesn't know what it is, but obviously the audience does because it's the name of the show. <laughs> um, so at the very beginning... Um, usually the other co-host, whether it's me or whether it's Gavin, actually doesn't know what the subject is. This is a case where we have conspired as to planning out what our subject is going to be. Um, but one of the, if Gavin was here, the indication that your bookstore, uh, the URL for it is sandmanbooks.com would be something of an indication of the subject matter that we're going to be discussing today. So before I get into the imagine, if you will, um, we're going to be talking about something related to the fact that you have uh, sandmanbooks.com, which is right. A bookstore that you've run down there in Florida, right? 
since like a long time ago? Yes, <laughs> since uh, 2006. And it is, um, we have a brick and mortar store, but then also, of course, we sell online as well as everybody does now. Yeah, well, God's bless you for still managing to upkeep um, a physical in the world bookstore in 2022, because somebody has to do it. I'm, I'm glad you're <laughs> putting in that work. I can't yeah. even begin to imagine what kind of uh, frustrating hustle that must be at sometimes. It's a uh, it's a brave new world. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's yeah brave new slash incredibly old world, which seems like a bizarre juxtaposition of things. But I'm I'm glad you're doing it. Um, so usually uh, we have at this point in the show before we get onto their mo- onto the monster a brief trip over what to what we call. Vocabulary. One of us brings in a completely um, odd word from obscure vocabulary, and I've done all this homework for us today, as I am the uh, regular host on the show. And the word that I have for you, Heidi, is liberosis. Uh, L-I-B-E-R-O-S-I-S is liberosis. It is a noun that means the desire to care less about things to loosen your grip on life, to stop glancing behind you every few steps, afraid that someone will snatch it from you. <laughs> what a mood. Yeah, I mean, I have this list of very of very vibe-heavy, obscure words, which is why people will pr- probably notice that when it's my turn to do villainous vocabulary, it gets very ponderous and, and shoegazy. Um, but uh, I, I like them. I don't know why. Because it's associated with worrying and being uh, having analysis paralysis and ruminating on things for too long. It's definitely a thing that um, I, I definitely experience liberosis, sometimes too much, sometimes too little. I don't know. So I don't know. That is our, that is our dictionary definition from today, liberosis, which sounds like something you get from drinking too much Boone's Farms, but is just um, being too wistful about not worrying about things. Okay. Well, now that we're out of here... <laughs> Transition. So this is going to be the little story where I, for the purposes of the audience, kind of unroll the red carpet to create a scenario where we would imagine meeting our quote unquote monster. So um, if this one, this one's a little bit elaborate because I had to find a, I want to, I went into a historical direction. So it's gonna, it's gonna, Ooh. it's a little bit of a chunk. Nice. Okay. So if you lose me, You'll probably pick me back up again by the time I get to the end of it. So we'll just be optimistic about it. Okay. Okay. All right. So Heidi, imagine if you will, it's 554 BC in the height of the Etruscan Empire. You are a well-off clothing dyer in the vast city of Populonia. You are stumbling away from the orgy at the height of the Temple Mountain, having won a bet that you could eat an entire goat's foreleg before the priestesses would bring out the symbolic phallus cake and thus commence the drinking of the high wine. Having taken your gold piece from Vicendi, the grave digger, you escaped the heady smoke of the bacchanalia to find the comfort of your bed. But as you drift through the city streets, head filled with purple flower smoke, lips still sticky with the fatty goat oil, you step away from a leprous beggar distracting you from the royal wagon that bears down upon you, trampling you underfoot, laid out in the middle of the street as the sun sets over the horizon. 
your wife is fetched for and she finds you. Coughing blood, the single coin of your winnings at the orgy between your lifeless fingers. She places the coin in your warm mouth and closes it and your eyes for you as you awaken on a shimmering molten hillside, steaming with molten lava. Above you hovers a bizarre silhouette, a woman, but not exactly a woman, eight feet tall with voluminous hair and a bronze sword brandished at her side. Not nearly as brazenly as her breasts, she kneels over you and you orient yourself. We have some way to walk, new friend, she says above you. Suddenly, all of this seems to have a natural flow, as if in a dream, and she carries you, or do you float across a twisted, unreal landscape until you find the river, where waits a dark figure with a long scythe who beckons you to come nearer as you notice the weight of it in your hand, the gold coin, scratched, but still glimmering. Okay, so from that very long walk, uh, Heidi, what is the monster topic that we are here to discuss today? We are here to discuss psychopomps. Yes, awesome. And the specific, um, the specific famous psy- psychopunk that my story came from was right. <laughs> um, so that would be Death of the Endless. Death of the Endless? Okay, cool. Yeah, all right. Yeah, I was, I, I, whenever I had... Or did I misguess? The, so the, the female Etruscan god Sharoon is somehow a different psychopomp than Sharon of Greece. Uh, I didn't mean to make it that confusing. And you know, you, you did say Etruscan and I was just not paying attention. <laughs> well, no, don't feel bad. I mean, once you once you get pre-Greek, uh, you know, things are things are very literally muddy. So, and the, there's a fact that there's literally two like <laughs> an, antiquarian psychopomps named Sharon and Sharon is like, okay, give us all a break. So, I didn't mean to make it uh, intentionally obscure. <laughs> but when I found this winged woman with a sword and specifically like weird high skirts it's- and her breasts exposed, I was like, well, I got to go with that, right? That has to be that has to be the direction. And that sounds almost like a I know there's a, a Babylonian statue that that reminded me of a lot too. So I think I may have been a little bit thrown by that. Yeah, no. So but straight up bare bones, our topic today is uh are is psychopomps. What is it? What is the category of a psychopomp and um, how can we know we're talking about one, whether in mythology or in literature? What makes something a psychopomp and what are some really prominent examples? So a psychopomp is essentially a an entity whose function is to guide the souls of the recently deceased to the afterlife. That's it. That's their entire right. function. They're not a judge. They simply guide the souls of the newly dead onto the next world. Yeah. And it's, um, what, what's interesting is for, um, for being kind of a middleman or a middle person, um, in terms of a job, like literally, uh, breaching from this world to whatever the other world of the specific culture is. It's, it's amazing how many of them there are. It's it like, at minimum, Absolutely. at minimum, dozens. You know, I, you know, like on my relatively cursory research, it seems like they exist in virtually every culture that has a, um, 
you know, a religious afterlife, there's somebody whose job it is to make sure you get from here to there. And I'm, I find that a very fascinating concept for it to be so ubiquitous. It is. And one of the most, um, one of the most interesting things to me about psychopomps as kind of a category in, in mythology is that it's very liminal and it's very tied to transitions and one of the big things that's important for uh, a psychopomp is that they can actually, they're actually capable of traveling in that kind of in-between space. Um, so it's one of those things where, it, you know, sort of if you were to think of it as like, what's their superpower, mm-hmm. their their power is that they can actually travel from one world to the next. Whether right. that means the afterlife or an alternate universe or whatever, that in-between travel is kind of their, their specialty. Right. And... Yeah, you seem to have kind of hit the crux kind of early on, which is that they're it's almost that they're the only person or and I've noticed that on a few occasions there's more than one psychopomp in a particular um religion or culture or, or way of thinking. Absolutely. Well, especially when you have the the combinations of, you know, where the one religion kind of combines with another. Um so sometimes you'll have a, you know, different variants of Catholicism or um, more local religions, then a lot of times you'll end up with more than one entity that fills up that role of the psychopomp. Yeah. And just, um, and for, you know, for grasping sake, what, what's a Catholic example that is obvious to everyone that you don't even, don't even think about that way. Uh, so Santa Muerte is our lady of the Holy death. Um, essentially she's kind of a, a protector granting safe passage to the next life. Um, but it's actually very, uh, the Catholic church actually kind of disavowed that she's a saint, but of course the locals yeah, sure. are very attached to her and did not want to let her go. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, that's, a probably the most well-known Catholic one. And that's, if you're familiar with day of the dead celebrations and things like that, she tends to tie in really well with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, she kind of seems to me as kind of a, there's is kind of like a matronly um, grim reaper thing going on almost. You know what I mean? It, Absolutely. Sort of a, a mother. Yeah. It's kind of a, a mother death almost. Yeah. Like um, less, less Monty Python joke and more like Abuelita style. If that makes any sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. That there's a comforting aspect to it and that, you know, it's okay. You can rest now. There's she's sort of there to be comforting rather than to be scary. Yeah, I was I was recently having a conversation with my with a, at a, at a party where I was saying like, you know, as as many of our societies shift into a more secular reality, some faster than others, um, what seems most frustrating is that we seem to get rid of like all of the wrong shit from like religion. <laughs> like it seems like what we do is we're like, okay, what we need is regulations on the way women dress and being really <laughs> uptight and, and shame about having a naked body, but we're going to get rid of all of the cool parties and extra holidays <laughs> and like awesome gods that don't wear clothes, but do have swords. And I'm like, why didn't we, we should no fun allowed. Yeah. Why, <laughs> why are we like the cultures that get hassled by the Catholic church for not doing it Catholic enough are always being hassled for the coolest shit that they do. 
like the like the old lady, like the old Abuelita Grim Reaper. I'm like, keep the old lady Abuelita Grim Reaper. That's like the coolest thing you got. Like, I don't know, the, the Mexican-Americans that are, you know, folding in elements of kind of the older pagan traditions from Central America. That's way more interesting and straight up like Pope Catholicism. I don't know, but I'm very I'm very prejudiced, <laughs> as you could obviously tell. But um. No, I, I've, I pound the gavel. I'm like, we should all be doing this absolutely backwards. It's like more wine, more holidays, and more like like gods with wings and bare breasts, and less of all that crap that you um, want to do. Less regulating people. Yes. <laughs> but exactly. before before we get like immediately uh, derailed, what are some other like really prominent examples if we get away from ca- um, Catholicism? that are either more historical or literary. Yeah, so the more um, more sort of almost iconic one would be Anubis from Egyptian mythology. Yes, yes, yes. And Anubis, of course, is the guide to the afterlife. And he's not the judge. Um, Osiris is the one who weighs your soul against the feather on the scales, but that's not Anubis's job. He's neutral. He's yeah. just there to be your guide and basically sort of almost act as like a like a bailiff <laughs> he's not there to judge he's not there to make any decisions yes just come with me ma'am right it's yeah, it's it's exactly. a, and there seems to be like universally and this is going to be inherently reductive but like universally it seems that that kind of like just come with me feature is the central in addition to the quote-unquote superpower of being able to be in all three spaces, meaning here in the middle and there, wherever here in the middle and there are. Absolutely. The neutrality is really important. Yeah. The second feature is, yeah, like if, if you were making this as a, um, a Dungeons and Dragons god, that it would be hashtag, hashtag true neutral, right? That it would. Absolutely. It has absolutely no. Um, it doesn't matter if you're Mother Teresa or Jeffrey Dahmer the same psychopomp's job is simply to get you from one place to the next. Yes. The perfect two examples, Mother Teresa and Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, the last podcast guys would be thrilled with thrilled with us already. So um, <laughs> are, is there anything that sticks out about Anu- Anubis other than his, I think he's a, I think he's a he God, although I, I'm not sure about so. how to ascribe gender to the Egyptians. Cause you know, yes, that's, probably a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just, um, it's interesting, but <laughs> this is going to come out way later, but we just recorded an episode with my friend, Claire, um, who is, uh, a, who's Filipino because we wanted a perspective. We covered the Mononongal, like witch vampires, which are one of the Oswang. Ooh. And we wanted, Ooh. we wanted, we wanted somebody who could never see the Oswang. Yeah. This so, so fun. And, but we wanted somebody that could give us a little bit, you know, correct these two 40 year old white dudes about things that are a little bit more subtle about that mythology. Transition. The the Mononongal, which is a female vampire that splits in half and flies on bat wings and like sucks out people's body parts through a six foot long tongue in the middle of the night. But essentially, there was a really good grim episode on that. Actually, yeah, for sure. I don't I don't think I've seen that one, but I have. I think I've seen that it exists. Uh, this is a case where I know I had a reason for getting onto that topic, but now that I've come up with this cool idea, I can't remember why. <laughs> How did I get on topic? <laughs> it was. 
Um, <laughs> and I'm no help because I'm just along for the ride, honestly. Yeah, like, no, yeah, something, something made me think about why we were talking about gender and... And when it happened, I knew what it was, but now I've forgotten. <laughs> oh, that was probably it, that there's Egyptian gender and Egyptian mythology is super interesting. And... Uh, and Right, which is which is to say, I kind of feel like we should have an episode, like kind of um, a roundtable episode with like six guests, where we just do like monster like a series on mon- like monsters <laughs> and, gen- and gender, you know, and like how different like popular monsters represent different complex ideas that relate to gender. Like just off the top of my head, like the the female teenage werewolves of the ginger snaps movies, for instance, it's like, what does that have to say about <laughs> gender? Like, I don't know if you're familiar, um, but like as a, as a horror nerd, there are a million ways that like a lot of times horror is about gender or, um, you know, is, a, yes. is about ha- being um, trapped in a certain body, you know, horror like Absolutely. really runs circles around these ideas Um and uh, and is is happy to deal with them where lots of other media and history is not. Okay, so we've got a we've got Anubis. I, I agree. Um, I, I mean, Osiris himself is kind of um, an oddly sexed character because he removes his genitals and throws them into the fucking river, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and yes, and, among other behaviors. Yeah, the which, Egyptians were. Their mythology is uh, not the same as Greek mythology. Yeah. <laughs> No, and I like it because you know uh, the West, the modern Western world can be a little bit too Greek centric, in my opinion. But um, that's a that's another whole thing. Well, if we move past <laughs> if we move past Anubis, what's another what's another prime example that would be um, off of your list that we cannot fail to mention? Okay, yeah. So um, I have a massive list actually. <laughs> also, okay. the Valkyries. The Valkyries are another really good one. Yes. And I love the Valkyries also in this context because you were just talking about sort of that. Um, feminine nurturing, comforting aspect of, of death as almost a, a comforter, which is one of my personal favorite ones, of course, is death from the Sandman. Uh, what features about the Valkyries are like are noteworthy to internalize before we move on to another subject? Because there's there's some it's a word that you hear that has gotten pulled into pop culture, but I feel like maybe we don't. Actually, we bother to think about Absolutely. Them. And people think of them. Um, yeah. So people tend to think of the Valkyries as warriors, but that's not super accurate. Um, what they actually, what their actual role was is that they would accompany the fallen warriors from the battlefield to Valhalla. So okay. if you fall in battle honorably and you have a good death in battle and you're brave, then the idea is that the Valkyries will, uh, come and so your reward is that you have these beautiful women that show up on their winged horses and fly you to Valhalla, where you feast and hang out with your bros forever. Yes, and they are absolutely psychopomps, and that's they're also beautiful and strong women. And then there's different versions of the of the myth where um, you know sometimes the the Valkyries that may be a role that can be taken on by someone who was a warrior. And when it's their turn to pass on, then they can become a Valkyrie. But um, that's not always the case, depending on kind of the version of the story. When looking at the Valkyries, it kind of seems to a certain extent that in addition to being um, that they are not just neutral uh, bailiffs, but it kind of it seems almost as if they have a low level 
like judgment aspect to them to decide whether you were Norse enough right. to get to Valhalla. And some of that is, uh, not all of that is from sort of the original Norse myth. Some of that hmm. is a, the, the Valkyries have been sort of co-opted for different, um, different uses, which is of course how myth works. And yeah, for sure. Level. Um, but I think part of it is just that there's, you know, part of it is, is Wagner and the mm, song, uh-huh, you know, yeah. everybody thinks of, if you don't know anything at all about Valkyries and then you hear the song and you yeah. hear and you think, okay, it's called the ride of the Valkyries. It's very, um, it's very martial. It's very yeah, inspiring, sure. very war. And so if you don't know anything else at all, then you kind of hear the song and you hear the name and you think, oh, they must be warriors, which isn't quite what they are. Yeah, sure. And so that can be a little bit. There's a sort of a different um, impression of it for that. Yeah, I I, I'm just. Part of it. Yeah, I'm just trying to. It seems as if, you know, even if they are not warriors, that I'm curious. It seems as if there is a little bit that they are given a little bit of power to judge whether or not you are a good enough Viking to go to the the forever meat hall, as opposed to like. I mean, Anubis basically, as long as you die shots. in battle. Okay. Yeah, so it's not so much like they basically if you die in battle, then yeah. that's then that's it. Okay, fair enough. We'll just keep it. Simple. It's not so much. I mean, I assume that there would be an aspect of like if you're if you died because you stabbed your brother in the back, maybe that would right. be relevant. But yeah, for the most part, yeah. if you die in battle, the Valkyries come for you. Right. They probably yeah. They probably don't have a twenty eight hundred page tome with a lot of like little tiny rules about it. It's probably pretty simple. <laughs> I think a lot of it too was a lot of it's about bravery too. So if right. you're, if you run away from the battle, you can't be carried off by the Valkyries because you're not there to die in the battle because you yep. were a coward and you ran away. It is, it is important in martial societies that the religion tell you yes. that it's a good thing <laughs> so to have yourself killed like, for the state. Not as fussy about the exact details of, you know, whether you were the best swordsman or the bravest, yeah, but yeah, yeah, as yeah. long as you were not a coward who ran away from the you're, battle, then that's that's your hero's death. Your intentions met the priorities of the the town or the nation you showed up. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you showed up is exactly right. Yeah. Um, okay, so at, um, moving on from Valkyries, you mentioned that um, that you wanted to talk about. Uh, why don't Why don't you introduce the next topic because you'll do a better job than I will. Oh yeah, I mean, so obviously my well, so my personal favorite in terms of psychopomps is is death from the Sandman. And so her role is very clear. And he does such a good job with those comics of, um, of explaining it very well that she's not there to judge. And also that she doesn't have a horse in the race, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, she's, there's a, a really classic line from the comic where she's come to pick somebody up you know, it's their time. And the person that she's there for typically tries to bargain uh-huh. and, you know, as one does <laughs> and it's, she's just not the person to ask. She doesn't make that decision. And she says, you know, he's like, well, I just, I didn't get enough time. And she says, you got what everyone gets. You got a lifetime. And it's very, you know, it's, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter whether it was a year or 20 years or a million years. 
it's time for her to pick him up and that's it. So death is a character in the Neil Gaiman verse that's contained within the Sandman, both comic, but then obviously Sandman was then transitioned into series of um, dead tree novels and is currently being adapted into uh, a major film that is going to come out this summer. Um, but one of the reasons that death in that world is so evocative and culturally interesting is she or they is portrayed as kind of a like teenage goth girl with really pale skin and a bitchin' onk necklace, right? And that right that juxtaposition super... is very very something. Well, and what it is is it's it's the she's comforting. Right. And she's a comforting figure. And right. so, and, and another thing that's actually come up, there's been some internet drama about the casting for mm. the show, but, um, you know, she, death will, especially in the Sandman version, will appear in the form that will most comfort you. So if you're in, in the, you know, a lot of the art in the comics I is see. that sort of like 1980s goth rock chick, but, um, there's, uh, episodes where she's a cat or she's, um, uh, you know, there's an, a flashback. I, I think it's a flashback episode to uh, a country in Africa and she's African. And so there's always going to be, it's her aspect is adaptive. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I'm seeing, I am not, I, which has been, oh, sorry. No, you're okay. Um, I, I, I'm seeing that like um, the, the kind of like entertainment.com um, biz about this is that she is being portrayed uh, in the, the new film that's coming out by an actress named or an actor named Kirby Howell Baptiste. And I'm just going to extract. She's so beautiful. Uh, yeah, she does. I think I've, what are, I'm wondering what I know her from, but I'm sure that there's one corner of the internet that is like, you made somebody black yes. that wasn't black before. I'm just to simplify it. And the thing, the hilarious thing about that is that um, she was in the comics also because she's everything. <laughs> right. And uh, my favorite response to that is that just when everybody was complaining, Neil Gaiman had, I think he was just fed up of hearing about it, which is totally understandable. And, you know, all these people are complaining, oh, it's not like the books. It's not like the books. And well, first of all, that actually is in the books. But anyway, and uh, he, he said on his, I think it was his Twitter. He just said, well, I guess none of you guys even read the comics. <laughs> yes. <I'm... laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's that's pretty much the only possible response to these, you know, weird fetishist fanboys that are upset because the casting doesn't look like their personal fantasy. Yeah, well, and it seems it seems as if the the fanboys only give a shit when um, the ratchet strap tightens in a in the direction that is like not cishet white men. Um which is, you know, uh, relatively and it's, obvious. It's also especially funny because the Sandman is so, um, has just always been so progressive. And so, I mean, the, there's a, a really interesting subplot of the Sandman comics, you know, from the 90s that's very, it's a very uh, emotional and thoughtful and meaningful story about a trans character from the 90s. Right. That's, um, that's, you know, this is none, none of this is new to the Sandman. Right. And so it's very funny to me. Almost. It's just almost hilarious that they're, they just did not understand the entire story. Yeah. Well, I, and like to, to pull this to, to something that can help me contextualize it is I'm not that much of a Sandman person, but I am a big American gods enthusiast. 
Um, yeah, then and, you, you understand. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I read the book, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. And, and I actually am, am a fan of its adaptation into the show. I think there are things about the show that are not my favorite, but none of it has to do with like casting people in a way that, um, you know, culturally steals or goes into a direction that is like problematic. I mean, in terms of like, um, casting people in that show in a way that doesn't do it for me, you know, I would say kind of, um, what's her butt from wicked being, um, Easter. Yeah. Honestly, that, I mean, as much as I like her, I kind of want like a big brasty busty lady that, that kind of just gives off this sense of like the banquet that was written as it was written in the novel. And Kristen Chenoweth gives off kind of a more, in my opinion, like waspy, boat shoes, uptight version of Easter that does not hew with how <laughs> I imagine that God or that holiday. You see what I mean? But it, I, I don't really yeah. give a shit whether the character is white and blonde. I, if, any, if anything, right. I, I think that the portrayal is like, okay, you got Kristen Chenoweth because it would be a big draw. But like, you know, I, I would rather have somebody who... I'd rather it be, have, be sizest toward the big end rather than the small end, if that makes any <laughs> sense. Because it seemed, you know, the, all of those symbols that we forget are so pagan about Easter. I wanted to be wrapped up in one, you know, like on-screen depiction. Abundance. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, I wanted them to be, as they were in the comic book, you know, laying in a in a, um, a busy park, you know, with a massive picnic around them and soaking in the sun. And, but you know, that's just, you don't, yeah. you never get any, well, you I never get things exactly the, like you want in movies and TV. So what are, what are you going to do? One of the things that I think is really cool about um, a lot of the Neil Gaiman adaptations actually is that uh, whenever, whenever he's personally very closely involved with it, it's just amazing. Yeah. So, he's like the anti Stardust Stephen King. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like Stardust was fantastic um, in terms of an adaptation. Good Omens is like the best book adaptation. Yeah, so so funny so with, between, with those two guys. Because, oh my gosh, they're amazing. And so I'm super excited because I think that um, from what I understand, he's really closely involved in the Sandman adaptation. So I'm hoping that's a very good sign. Yeah, I have very little skin in the game as someone who oddly was like a. Um, uh, like a baby goth in the nineties, but did not consume Sandman. You know, I, I, that is a little surprising. Well, well, we had the, my thing, my there, can I explain this phenomenon? I don't know how old you are, but I'm old enough that my friends and I were goth in the nineties in West Virginia. So, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a real interesting time, but there, there was this (laughs) phenomenon that I now understand in the macro in retrospect where, um, we were not into things that seemed as if, they were actually exactly for us. We didn't like. <laughs> uh, we didn't like um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We we didn't like a Neil Gaiman's uh, Sandman. Many of us because it was it, it was almost like there was an eye of the Two storm. The yeah, it was, there was an eye of the storm that we ignored. Where you know we decided like oh Marilyn Manson's not cool anymore we only listen to Einstein Neubauten and Nitzer Ebb you know there, <laughs> there it was kind of a, a there was this late teens uber pretension that insulated us from things that we should have just enjoyed because they were great and the Sandman <laughs> was in my personal 
um, kind of eye of the storm where I just didn't consume it because it seemed so natural that I would. And I was always a very um, superior contrarian to anything that looked like it was actually for me. <laughs> if I if I didn't seek it out like a truffle pig, it had no value whatsoever. But that's just a, a personal failure of, my, of, of mine. And now I'm, you know, now- No, I'm very sympathetic. I, yes, I'm very sympathetic. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I don't, I've learned to not give a shit and then nothing matters and I should just read all of these books and probably the graphic novels. Well, and the well. advantage is that now you have all this unconsumed. Media. Yeah, for sure. When I get you know stuck in the hospital with you know kidney stones or something, I can read all these books and it'll be fantastic. Um, <laughs> but um, what what is the if you had a as someone who obviously has um, some kind of relationship to the the sandman world and the the character of death like what what is it that really drew you to this fictional reality what what would you not want the audience to have um just slide by what would you want to make sure that they are educated on about the character or the world that is made it made it so compelling so, about you that you named a whole darn uh, bookstore out of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, part of what it is is that just and this is this is kind of true for everything um, that Gaiman has written, but especially true for the Sandman is it's it's just it's everything, and it's everything in a everything about every mythology and every story fits into this story, every story that ever exists is exists in this world every character whoever existed exists in this world and it's just so he does such a really beautiful beautiful job of making a single story that's somehow also about every story ever right there's he kind of by beginning by getting specific but then like throwing that that net of constellations over all of these various sub stories that he wraps all of these different concepts into one larger constellation that can be like actually actually understood in in mass later on absolutely and a lot of that is you know sort of if you and i've, I've always loved mythology anyway so when i basically discovered that, um, and this was not the first thing of his that I read, I read, uh, I think Neverwhere first, but when I realized that it, it's like a, an entire, it's almost like a, like a mythological theory of everything. Yeah. Um, there's a science word I can't remember that I will think of at three in the morning. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a cosmology or a teleology or a it, pantheon. It's one of those. One of those, probably. And basically, like it's it's just very uh, you know. So if this is a world that does have um, Thor from you yeah, know, sure. Norse mythology, and it has uh, Lucifer, pretty much as we know him, and them, I guess. And then um, you know, it has all of these other, anything that has ever existed in the mind of a human exists in this world. And because of the way he wrote it so smoothly and so beautifully that it ties together, it works. And usually to have something so big and have so much in it doesn't, it can be unwieldy. Right. George R. R. Martin, I'm looking at you. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but it, it's not at all unwieldy because he does this incredible job of balancing 
the individual on the individual level of that you have a story about the character, which in the story of the Sandman, it's it's about dream. Yeah. And, um, but at the same time, he touches on all these details that are. I've actually been rereading them recently, and it's amazing how many things that I missed. There's so many details and so many Easter eggs that it didn't. It didn't, you know, hurt me from enjoying the story, but it's just sure. that after, you know, years and years and years of reading other things and watching other things, now I'm going back and one of the one of the like here's a great example is there. The Sandman is kind of a, a reimagining of an earlier DC comic character who was a gas mask wearing um right. World War Two type superhero ish thing and that character is in Neil Gaiman's Sandman, and right. he does the most beautiful version of managing. To, like, it's not even a conflict; it's just part of that story. He's like, "Oh yeah," and then there was this other one that you guys remember from there. So, for people who have been fans of the old Sandman, however long ago it was, yeah, it fits in just as well. <laughs> it's yeah, just yeah, it's yeah. amazing how good he is at that. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with you. I think Gaiman is is particularly good at um, laying out um, large, complex tapestries and and tricking you into not realizing that it's all tied together in such a subtle way. Absolutely, because you know, I think you were talking earlier about a sort of like youthful pretension, and sometimes when you have an epic story, mm, yeah, that's for sure, problem, yeah. <laughs> it knows that it's epic, and and when you're reading the Sandman, it doesn't know that it's epic. It's just a story. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So uh, I'm good. I want to mention if maybe if you want to think of one or two last examples while I introduce my favorite one that I ran across um, Ooh, okay. is I, I ran across uh, a guy named Ogmios, who is uh, Celtic, um, a Celtic god of Gaul. Uh, and he is identified with Hercules and is portrayed um, as an old man with quote unquote swarthy skin, which of course they've always used in mythology and history texts to mean basically darker than like pale ass white people and armed with a bow and club. He was a God also of eloquence. So he gave long speeches and in that way, he was represented as drawing a long company of men whose ears were chained to his tongue. So I kind of like this, like, I don't know, like dad bod guy who um, was talking <laughs> talking your ear off as he's taking you to like French heaven. That seems like a very, uh, a great uh, a combination. Absolutely. And again, it kind of really ties into that sort of like comforting figure. So it's like, almost like, you know, at this scary time when everything is changing and there's transitioning, you know, now you have this sort of, it just reminds you of your dad or your uncle or somebody that will make you feel safe. Yeah. I, um, um, it's one of the things that it seems to, to be that this, um, as you get to a good word is this comforting aspect that seems to be, um, that penetrates all of these various iterations of psychopomps it seems to have to do with like that feeling of kind of when you get into like an Uber of, do I feel totally fine in this immediately or not? And it seems that's as a if really, that's a really good comparison <laughs> and uh, in a way to like make it a modern thing, like that each of these characters in a way is like the Uber driver whose car immediately sets you at ease where that their very right. presence naturally, 
takes over your emotional experience of the situation and says, this is fine. It's inevitable. We're going to get you to the place where you need to be. Don't worry about this part. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. Which is so, and it's so important. And that's such a, you know, it's because it's such a, a transitional thing and, and something that we don't know what's going on. And that's one of the things too, that I think is really interesting is all of the myths. No psychopomp ever tells you what's happening. Yeah, right. There's kind of when I when I'm thinking about the various stereotypes that I imbue these character with characters with just from cultural repetition, it always seems kind of just um oh just come along, don't worry about that. You, you know, there is Right. A, and if if you met one and they said, you know, you'd ask them and but when they said, "Oh, I can't tell you that." You'd be like, "All right, yeah, I guess not." Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Were, were there any other standout, quirky, or noteworthy examples that you want to hit before we get on on, to, on with the end of things? One of my favorites is actually a banshee. Oh, um, please, because... yes. <laughs> so the banshee is, you know, it's a, it's a Celtic psychopomp. For um, sure. And in a more... I, I'm not going to get too far going on Celtic mythology, but I will just never <laughs> oh, shut up ever. Okay. And, um, <laughs> but, uh, the Banshee is great because, uh, it's a, uh, similar to siren mythology, the Banshee, if you hear the cry of the Banshee, it's the wailing. Just, yeah. Yes. The wail of the Banshee. It is not good. Yes. You're right. <laughs> and you know, again, she's not the one doing the killing, but she's there to collect you. Yeah. And, um, in the case of the Banshee, it's also interesting because it, also crosses over into a death omen, which there's a lot of death omens, of course, that are somewhat, you know, there's a lot of a lot of bleed through and maybe a little bit of redundancy amongst death omens versus a psychopomp. But um, in the case of the Banshee, I just always found that one really compelling because it's, you know, again, it's a woman, but this one's sort of terrifying, but it's actually, she's not scary, but she just sounds scary. Um, but she's a great one because she's a, she's a fairy. <laughs> And then I think my the one that I actually learned about more recently is uh, this one's kind of fun because it's a little bit unexpected. But, but the Aurora Borealis is also a psychopomp. Really? And who? Well, it's, yes. got, it's got to be some Scandahuvians of some Alas- kind. Right. It's, oh. it's Alaskan. Oh, natives. like um, oh, okay. So, I, I don't yeah. know why I should have. So, I, I didn't think of that. That's I'm too <laughs> well northern. Northern. Um, yeah. <laughs> so essentially, the story is that um, the the Aurora Borealis is lights which are lit Mm -hmm. by friendly spirits to guide our way to the next life Ah, how about that and again it's so beautiful and comforting and it's that same aspect of and plus the aurora borealis on its own is so yeah deeply liminal anyway um but it's kind of fun because it's sort of the only like non well there are plenty of non-human not embodied but that one's just lights yeah sure (laughs) But as, but the upside being something that people can actually prove exists. You know, you actually do see. There it. is that. Yeah. So <laughs> there you, is. You that. can you can see is why you would want to like give that a place in your cosmology. Um, Absolutely. Fantastic. And it's pretty. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Pretty natural phenomenon that you cannot explain in the sky. Always. You know. It's always worthy of some kind of explanation, regardless of where <laughs> you are in history. Absolutely. Hi there. My name is Douglas Raffensperger, and I'm a CEO and founder of Douglas's Cutlasses. Have you ever found yourself in this situation? You've just gotten home from a long day of spurring growth at your small but thriving business. 
You're just trying to slice some quality deli meats and cheeses for a relaxing snack, and suddenly there's a mysterious intruder rummaging through your garbage outside. What's a domestic disruptor to do when you get in a pickle like this? Pull out your handy-dandy, short-handled, half-guarded navel sword, that's what. Here at Douglas and Colors, we've got every possible colors for every conceivable scenario. Are you an aspiring or current CEO of a Fortune 500 company? I've got a colors for that. A middle school teacher struggling to maintain discipline in the classroom? I've got a colors for that. Looking to add a little flair to drab dinner parties? I've got a colors for that. Some people say to me, but Douglas, I'm not a pirate, privateer, or sailor. What do I need with a battle-quality 27-inch half-guard naval sword? I'm so glad you asked. Here at Douglas's Cutlasses, our research shows that the vast majority of conflicts, both business and personal, can be positively affected by the introduction of a modest, well-crafted naval sword. So let's get swashbuckling. No matter what's your problem, an easy-to-wield iron-forged cutlass is probably the solution. So once again, I'm Douglas Raffersmer of Douglas's Cutlasses. Come get stabby with me. Please go to paypal.me slash oopsallmonsters and make a payment there. And that's oops with two O's. Again, that link is paypal.me slash oopsallmonsters. With having covered all of those, um, let's get to the, the last segments of the show. So Heidi... Um, I know you only have a certain amount of knowledge of um, uh, how our show functions technically, but w- at the end of the show, we ask whether today's subject is hashtag bitchin' van art. Is it, is it, is it, is it, is it bitchin' van art? Um, and it's a, the only way that we rate our subject. It's a binary about whether the subject is or is not bitchin' van art. It's not a quality statement. It's just a yes or a no. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I'll put it to you. What is your gut check reaction to whether the uh, profile of the various different kinds of uh, psychopomps from these various different pantheons, are they bitchin' van art? Um, and just go with your gut. Don't overthink it. I want to go with yes. Yeah, I'm kind of leaning yes because you have so many options. A, a, Anubis is so, bitching. Valkyries are bitching. Meaning, you know, like just to could you uh, question. So, yeah. like, would you paint it on your van? Yeah, well, yeah. Well, if you had, absolutely yes. Yeah, if you had absolutely a, yes. If you had a Valkyries are easy. If you had a 1979, you know, Chevy van with like shag carpeting on the inside. Would right, you, would you, need you to paint something on the outside yeah. so everyone knows you're not a serial yeah. killer? Yeah, if you painted some cool shit on the side, would this cool shit be bitching? And I think, yeah, with it, I mean, it, I think I would just paint them all together in one giant mural. Yeah, yeah. you've got Grim Reaper imagery, you've got um, Valkyrie imagery, you've got so many different options to make this like a, a march of the terrifying, terrifyingly Anubis. neutral, um, terrifyingly neutral friends of death. Then, yeah. Uh, go figure. Yeah. The psychopomps may or may not technically be monsters, but they definitely are hashtag bitch and van art. Okay, well, that was an easy one. I was worried that with a guest, we would uh, him and haw over that for ages. But <laughs> actually, it, one of the things that I've learned about this show is you do not know ahead of time whether you're going to think something is bitch and van art. I literally don't think about it until the segment comes up, and then I'm surprised all the time, even by my own topics. <laughs> it's completely, completely random. <laughs> Thank you.
All right, this next segment, if you can believe it, is even more esoteric and confusing than the previous one. Uh, let me see if I can copy a link. You and I already have um, Google Chats open because we're, uh, I think, elder millennials. So I'm just going to send this link to you on that. And this is going to make absolutely no sense at the beginning, so I'm going to have to front load an explanation as about what the hell we're talking about. Okay. And now, the segment on the show we call Gary Newman, Ken Ku Artificer. Okay, so did you get that really weird random picture that I sent you? I did, yes. Okay. Um, do you, off the top of your dome, have any idea who that weird gargoyle-looking guy is? Uh, well, you give me three minutes to Google it. So yes. <laughs> okay. Well, so here's the thing is Gavin and I, I, I introduced very early on in the show. It was a very early episode. I think it was the Candyman episode, um, a, a segment called hashtag describing Nick cave. Uh, I don't know why I did it. It just occurred to me randomly that it was really funny to look at pictures of Nick cave and then describe them because generally he looks like Ooh, okay. a retired wizard. Or, um, you know, like, um, you know, a, a carton of cigarettes turned into a human golem or something. And then subsequently, we have introduced various other celebrities that are fun to physically describe. And now we are on a chart okay. where we are describing um, pioneering uh, synthesizer and new wave artist Gary Newman. <laughs> Um, and this cool. is this is a photo. I'm a big. We're both big fans of Gary Newman, so quote unquote taking the piss out of him seems like completely nonsensical. But I, I don't know. We're addicted to the. We're addicted. Well, he's to the one that wore that jacket. Exactly. He. <laughs> that's what. I and this is a, a common thread in our um, hashtag Gary Newman Kenku Artificer bits, which is he really does the work of making himself look like um, as we as we have described it, kind of um, like a, reti um, a retired Harkonnen prince from the Dune. So universe. what we're going to do then is basically roast him. Ah, uh, you know the goal. Uh, we've tried to like or the outfit because. <sighs> I mean, I'm, I'm you, just, you just tell that. you just tell me what year what occurs to you because he's making these decisions, you know. Like, it, I th so, the weird thing is, I we we do really like Gary Newman, but also right. And the thing is, like, I'm just looking at his jacket because I don't know anything about himself, so all I can really do is look at the costumes. But this is a really interesting jacket. Um, yeah, and it's like it's like a jacket. Except it's not. It's cargo pants, but he's wearing them as a jacket. And also, I want it. Yeah. I mean, he has this. I would also like to have it. In, I would like, say what? in like the last seven or eight years, he's had. I, he must have a costumer is, or somebody who is working for him specifically. Why does the collar have like tactical SWAT yeah, it's on. kind of like his whole aesthetic. You is, can put a grenade on yeah, it's his like, collar. It's like a tactical backpack turned into a. I can't whole think of the name of it. They have those special routine. straps. Yeah, no, you're they're tactic. You're talking about tactical straps for sure. And his daughter misunderstood how Ash Wednesday works. <laughs> no, they're doing their very special like Gary Newman household like um, God is dead thing here. Obviously. Um, oh, okay. They, well, they, then that worked. His work has a very intense like anti. -Christian I think her God scarf might be made of mithril. Uh, yeah, well, she get, uh, she'll get at least a plus to her, to her AC from that. And, you know, that's good for a child, 
you you know you don't want your children to get killed by the vorpal sword uh it's a important priority for for any parent it's uh i would 10 out of 10 i would wear that scarf yeah yeah it's cool um i think that is an elaborate enough version of hashtag gary newman kenku artificer for you the completely uninitiated guest on the show (laughs) thank you for participating in the completely (laughs) disorienting and confusing bit um, so with that, that gets us on to the end chunk of the show where I do the script and we will have another, uh, piece to make sure that people can find your stuff. And then that's pretty much it. So, um, cool. uh, I hope you've been having an okay time despite all of our, um, uh, no, I've actually had fun. This job. is very fun. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> good. Okay. I've never done a podcast before, so. Oh, it's not. Well, uh, if you're, I'll, I'll tell you something about doing podcasts that usually when there aren't a barrel full of technical issues, being a guest is like the easiest gig in the world because the people <laughs> that are not the guests like handle all of the real like part and you're just supposed to show up and like kind of be mildly amusing. So um, I would be a guest on podcasts all day. It'd be the easiest gig in the world. It's just come on and say some shit. Yeah, I don't envy hours. you having to edit all of this. Uh, let's not talk about it. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of our time with you, dear reader. Until next time when we deliver you another batch of beasts bullywugs and bowls of flesh-eating dessert fluff. Share an episode on your favorite social media and hit up our Instagram for the images that go along with each episode. By the way, talking about Instagram, if you want to check out Heidi, she has all sorts of hilarious pocket dresses and juxtapositions of characters new and old over at Chimera Costumes, spelled like the monster on Instagram, at Chimera Costumes. And do not forget, if you're looking for a Neil Gaiman book or any other kind, to check out her used and meat space and online shop sandmanbooks.com like the Gaiman books sandmanbooks.com also if you want to toss a coin into our potion fund hit us up with a one-shot contribution at paypal.me slash oopsallmonsters or if you're feeling really froggy sign up at patreon.com slash Oops, all monsters. Lastly, I have to thank our wonderful friend Katie for our incredible theme song. Her work of the her work as part of the duo, the Darling Kathleen's, can be found on YouTube at, uh, at the Darling Kathleen's. Okay, and with that, I have been Hess, and you have been Heidi Lang, Sandman Books, and we have been uh, a very um, a neutral <laughs> neutral shift into whatever your uh, afterlife of choice is. Oops, all monsters. Okay. Okay.